0: morning, Grace Point. Uh, my name is Pastor Ben. I am the multiplication and networking pastor here, and I get to continue in our Philippians series, and we're going to be in Philippians too, so if you have a Bible, phone, open up, and you can get ready, and we'll, we'll, we'll go through that together. But before we get there, think of a time, if you can, or a moment, especially in your closest relationship, uh, where you just had a disagreement, where you weren't on the same page. I mean, it could have happened this morning coming to church, right? This last week, me and my wife, we've been married 13 years, um, she was bringing me home from a doctor's appointment, and as we were coming out of the parking lot, she turned left, and it was the wrong way, because we'd always turned right. And I think we'd always turned right before, because I'm the one who usually drives. And so I look at her, and I go, why... Why did you turn left? She goes, I don't like going that way. We've never had this conversation before. So am I like my wife is the most efficient person I know. And turning right is the fastest, shortest way to get home, which was the goal. We had the same goal. We knew where we were headed, and it was home. But she went left, and I just couldn't understand. So I asked her questions, I just didn't get it. We have disagreements, right? Even with our closest relationships. Another one, man, Christmas decorations specifically outside Christmas decorations, we cannot get on the same page. Uh, Abby is very simple. Uh, she's really elegant. She, she can make things look really, really nice. So for her, it's like, I just want the simple yellow lights on the roof, nothing else, a little garland here. And it's like, that's great. I'm a child, and I want all the blow-up dolls that they have. <laughs> and so we just can't get on the same page. we right? like, disagreements happen. You're just not going to always be on the same page with the people that are close to you. Now, think about family holidays. Maybe not closest relationships, maybe for some of you. For some of you, you see your family all the time. Maybe it's once a year. Maybe it's four times a year. Uh, Maybe it's less than that. But family holidays, what you get is this group of people that have differing lifestyles and views and maybe face and political views. And it's like, and you come together and try to live in harmony for our family, at least, or my family, like, if, let's make it two hours. Uh, for some of you, it's like, man, we spend a seven-day vacation during Christmas and you guys can just do it real well. But even there, there's disagreement. There's just disagreement. It's really hard to always stay on the same page. And what we find in Philippians 2 and all over scripture, it's in John 17 in Jesus' prayer, is this call as followers of Jesus to not just live in community, but live in unity in community. And that can be really hard because not just with your closest relationship is there disagreement, not even in family moments and holidays is there disagreement. We coming together as a church, whether it's 2,200 or 2,000, it's a lot of different people. We don't know each other great. We know each other a little bit. Some of us know each other more than others, but there are differing views and thoughts on a lot of different things and so there's tension because living in community is challenging for that reason it's hard to always be on the same page maybe it's about music or how long the sermon should be or what version of scripture you should read or how many small groups you should offer or the type of outreach that you do we just have differing thoughts and views and so it's hard it can be hard to be united in community, yet when we come to Philippians 2, we get to this moment, almost the crux passage of the entire scripture, and this call of unity is something that Paul gives us. So let's open up to Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and we're going to jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Paul calls us to this idea of unity and community, and that's where we get our big idea for the entire morning. It's this. Modeling our relationships with one another after Jesus will lead to a unified community. As we look at the opening verse here, uh, there's the word therefore. I don't know if you've heard this in church before, but if the word is therefore, you're supposed to stop and see what's it there for. And last week, Pastor Aaron talked about this idea as followers of Jesus, we we're going we're gonna to face opposition, and we're going to experience hard seasons, and there's going to be suffering in our life, and so what does it look like to persevere through that? And one of the things that Paul calls the followers at the Church of Philippi to do, and us as followers of Jesus, is in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so where Paul in in verse 1 here in chapter 2 says, therefore, he's coming back to a continued encouragement of what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul in his encouragement as Pastor Aaron laid out last week is there's a reality where in your life as a follower of Jesus you're going to experience threats. They're going to be very challenging. They're going to do a lot of things that God's going to work in that you can't go through alone. And a lot of the threats are some of those threats that the Philippian church for sure dealt with and that we will deal with are external threats. Threats kind of outside the church. Threats from people who maybe don't know Jesus, who don't understand our faith. And he says, you're going to persevere through those because God is going to work within that in your life. And then he gets here to chapter two. He says, as you have experienced those threats, as you've walked through opposition, as you continue to do that, there's things that you've experienced And so he says, therefore, these are things not that when you experience them, but that because of a life transformed with Jesus you have experienced, he says, you've experienced encouragement in Christ. You've experienced comfort from his love. You've experienced fellowship with the Spirit. You've experienced tenderness and compassion. And this Greek word for tenderness, sometimes the Bible says mercy. It is this literal, like, tender emotion. It's the softening of the soul within you to be able to experience and live a life with Jesus and experience what he has for you. He's like, when you say yes to Jesus, and as you pursue him in community with each other, and as you even go through suffering and opposition, these are the things that you have and will continue to experience. So he says, you've experienced these great things. Encouragement, love, compassion. He says, since you have experienced those things as followers of Jesus, make my joy complete make my joy complete. Another version says, still my soul. And this is the call. He says, be like-minded, having the same love, one in spirit and in mind. And the implication here is that there was most likely a growing problem. There was a growing problem of disunity in the church. And in chapter four, Paul actually names names. And I'm not going to name those names because I don't know how to pronounce one of them. Uh, But he names names like there's disunity here. And this, this unity is going to not just cause distraction, but has the ability and opportunity to destroy what Jesus does, desires to do in your church. So be like-minded. Be united. And this united is it's a state of oneness or being in harmony or, or being in accord with one another. And what's really, really difficult about unity is I think that we make it more difficult and harder than it has to be. When I was younger, my grandma, uh, who, who passed away a few years ago, she loved the Peanuts cartoons, uh, and she would save newspapers And when I'd come for Thanksgiving Or just stay at her house We would read them together And I didn't understand them Because I was too young But she would laugh and she loved them And as, as I was prepping for this week I found a penis cartoon That I felt fit really well With kind of how we view unity sometimes And so we're going to throw it up um, This is Lucy and Linus Who have a very destructive Unhealthy relationship um, and, and Linus is watching, is watching a TV show And Lucy comes in, really aggressive, and she says, Switch the channels, I wanna watch my program. Uh, And ultimately, Linus goes, What authority do you have to be able to just come here, I'm watching TV, to be able to say, Switch the channels? And the most aggressive yet poetic threat I think I've ever heard, she goes, These five fingers, individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) So aggressive. It's so Linus, like, probably always, like, I don't want to be punched in the face by this psycho. I um, says, so, all right, what channel do you want? And switches to channel, and as he walks away, he sighs, and he looks at his hand, and he goes, man, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> and I think this is how we see unity sometimes. Is I think what we actually end up doing is we mistake uniformity for unity we make it more complicated than it needs to be to come together as one and live in the way in which God intended you see uniformity is when we think and say like we all have to have the same convictions the same theological doctoral interpretation of scripture we have to love the same and look the same and speak the same and dress the same and that's uniformity and then that's control where every single person has to do the exact same thing in the same way. And what Paul is saying, like that's, that's not unity, but I think, again, why we make unity so difficult is that's how we think. It's, man, well, when they don't have, well, my pinky has a different theological conviction than my finger, how can, I, I, we can't come together, it's impossible. Well, what Paul is saying, this call of a community to come together and be united, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, He's saying our unity is not based on having the same convictions or holding the same doctrines. It's not sameness, but oneness. Not uniformity, but unity. Paul is saying we are not identical, and that's actually a really great thing. Because in our diversity, as a church, we can share the same overarching passion, goal, and purpose. And indeed, we're supposed to pursue that. And that same overarching goal and passion and purpose is to pursue Jesus with everything that we are. And in our own pursuit of Jesus, there's going to be moments and times where we're going to have different convictions on what it looks like for us individually to follow Jesus. Where we get into trouble, and I think sometimes where we think unity is supposed to happen, is when I place my convictions that are not necessarily black and white in scripture. There are black and white things in scripture that yet we are supposed to pursue and do. And then there's some things, like if you ever read 1 Corinthians 8-10, through that are just gray. How are you supposed to deal with food? He's talking about to the church in Corinth. There are things that are just gray. But as I'm following Jesus, I I remember when I was uh, 20 years old and I came to know Jesus, I had different black and white convictions back then than I do now because I needed it back then to pursue Jesus well. In my maturity, as I've grown up, as I've relied more on Jesus, as I know who I am in Christ, there are things that I see back then that I saw as black and white that just right now were really, really gray. Like 20 years ago when I struggled with addiction uh, to drinking, like I had to make a black and white rule. like I cannot be around alcohol, period. Period. Now I can be around it. Still gotta drink it, but I can be around it now. It's not a same... In uniformity, we try to put our convictions on other people, in the gray areas of what it means to follow Jesus. In unity, as we all individually pursue Jesus, we pursue that passionately and running fast towards Jesus in love and in the same spirit. Oneness, not sameness. So the question then becomes, how do we live in unity with one another as followers of Jesus? And Paul awesomely describes, beautifully describes what this looks like for us. And our first point in this is this. We cannot achieve unity without putting something down. We cannot achieve unity, first and foremost, without putting something down. In verse 3, he goes right into this. He says, excuse me, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In this Roman culture, Pastor Aaron talked about it a couple weeks ago, Most one, Philippi was a city that was of abundance. It was very wealthy. The church was actually known for being insanely generous, as they've given to Paul's missionary journey and helped uh, actually support other churches in the region. And so it's a a city of abundance. It's a retirement city where Roman soldiers, who after, again, because it's Roman-occupied, would go there and actually retire. And in Roman culture, it's an honor-shame culture. And so to pursue your own path of gaining success, to have vain conceit and selfish ambition, was actually almost a Roman value, because whatever I needed to do to get the title that I wanted to get, so as a Roman general, they're going to do anything they can. Yes, Caesar was Lord, but anything I can to pursue my own gain and my own agenda, I'm going to pursue it and do it. And so most likely within this church, there are some people hearing this, and, and they're hearing this for the first time, like, oh, a pursuit of my own thing and my own interests solely is not a good thing. And so when he says, well, get rid of vain conceit, it's this idea of referring to an ex- excessive and unjustified belief in one's abilities, qualities, and superiority often accompanied by an attitude of arrogance or self-importance. Um, this is the person that you know who, after they've done something, they don't ask for affirmation. They ask for admiration. And affirmation is, hey, was that okay? Did I do a good job? Like admiration is saying, I know that was awesome, and I need to hear from you that that was awesome. This is vain conceit. It's this idea of bestowing almost glory on your safe, It's an inflated sense of self that is incredibly unhealthy and ultimately has negative consequences in our relationships. Selfish ambition uh, refers to the pursuit of personal goals, success, or advancement at the expense of others or without regard for the well-being of others. It's a pursuit of own interest without considering at all the impact that it may have on other people. Selfish ambition is actually the same word that Paul uses in chapter one when he's talking about these rival evangelists that are spreading the gospel. He said, some do this in love, some do this in selfish ambition, in rivalry, and he says like, they're trying to stir up trouble for me, and Paul can be really dramatic like I can, but like, there's a reality where like, they're just pursuing their own ambition and preaching Jesus. Ultimately, Paul says, I love that the gospel is being preached, but their motive is off and wrong, and we need to lay that down. And this even idea of rivalry or selfish ambition is this. In order for me to gain something, then someone else has to lose. That's selfish ambition. He's saying we need to lay that down. Then we get into what Paul is encouraging. He says this at the end of verse. rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Point two is this. We start seeing unity by pursuing humility. That's the title of the sermon today. It's unity through humility. We start seeing unity as we start pursuing humility. And he says, in humility, value others better than yourselves. The ESV in verse four says a little different. It says this. It says Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think when it comes to humility and pursuing humility and what that looks like, we have definitions kind of off a little bit. Like, we've all heard the phrase, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I think that's halfway there. I don't think that's the full picture. Yes, I shouldn't think less of myself, but also there's an idea here, and what Paul is saying, that I also, it's not that I shouldn't think of myself less, it's because we're humans, we're just going to think of our own interests. And I think when we've heard this language of, man, I just got to think about myself less and think about others, what we end up getting to sometime is this self-abasement, self-deprecation of I don't matter anymore. All that matters is other people. And that is not the call of humility. That is not the call of Jesus because there's this reality where I can't actually, in humility, be like-minded, serve people well if I'm not taking care of myself to a degree. As I'm pursuing my own relationship with Jesus, there are interests in that. As I'm pursuing a holistic health in Jesus, I have to watch out for myself, and that is only actually going to make me better in looking out for the interests of others. And this idea where the NIV says, in humility, value others better than yourself. It's not valuing in self-worth. It's not valuing in character. It's this idea of valuing in service. And again, this, I, I think we miss this sometimes when we talk about humility, where we just self-deprecate where I don't matter. And that's not the call here. There's a reality of like, hey, as you look out for yourself in your pursuit of Jesus and living life, look beyond yourself too. Not, not, not value them over yourself in self-worth or character, but in service. It's this idea of like, recognize how God has gifted you to live and move and breathe in him and, and, and be hum- humble in your relationship with people and be humble in your relationship with Jesus. It's like, there are going to be things you're good at. There are going to be things that you've been gifted in. And that you excel in, look at also what other people excel in. How do you lift them up? How do you encourage them? How do you pull out the best in them as they pursue their own relationship with Jesus? So God's solution is not to despise our own interests in humility, but God's way is to look out for other interests the way that we look out for our own. The Holman Bible Dictionary says this of humility, the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. So here's how we're defining humility this morning. Humility is when I have an accurate or correct sense of God, myself, and others. An accurate or correct sense of view of God, myself, and others. So if I'm living in selfish ambition and vain conceit, we're going to throw a graph up. What you're going to see is I am number one. I am on top. All that matters is my agenda. All that matters is what I want to have going It's really, really easy to see this in people, um, both in the church and outside the church, when it's obviously like they are only looking out for number one. And when I'm at the top, when I have this inflated view of self, when I have a false view or a wrong view of who God is and who other people are, I am just imposing my agenda on other people. But the call of Paul here for us as followers of Jesus and the call towards Christ is in humility we actually switch it and we have a correct and right view of God, ourself, and others. Where God is on top. And we have to make this shift in our mind to get there. Because I think we're continually tempted with pursuing our own gain, our own agenda, even in the church, even in the church. Because I think sometimes in service to other people, Maybe in trying to pursue unity and trying to be humble and wanting God to be glorified and wanting Jesus' name to be known, we serve in such a way that actually is pursuing our own angle or agenda without us even knowing it. Like if you're always angry and you serve in the church and you're just like mad about it because it's not done the right way, I think there's aspects of that and there's something in our soul there where it's like, I'm kind of serving my own agenda as I serve God. It's really hard to see in the church but it's there. Where if I have a correct view of God, of his worth and worthiness and holiness and power, he's gonna be on top. And it's not that he's not there. It's sometimes we live our life like he isn't. And so when I have a correct view of God and a correct view of myself, when I come to this moment in realization, man, like my thoughts are not his thoughts. Man, my ways are not his ways. I have no other choice but to, in humility, surrender and submit underneath his agenda and lay down my own. In humility, I'm surrendering and submitting to God's agenda and his ability to move in my life and the life of those around me. And the implication of the, in that is I'm gonna serve other people. It's just going to happen. As I continually, day after day, in surrender and submission to God's agenda, his purpose, priority in my life, the Holy Spirit will move within me to continue to create me who I was created in Christ to be. In surrender and submission every single day, God is moving. It is ultimately over and over again saying yes to, who, to becoming who I am in Christ and in that there is this correlation of readiness of service for the betterment of others, a willing to serve others. That is the outcome. Because when I have a right view of myself that I need God, a right view of God that he is there for me and loves me, a right view of others that, hey, we're on the same page and we're here for each other, I want to serve you, help you become, become closer to Jesus and know him more. The Holy Spirit will in, in us create this sense of humility. It's not something that we can do on our own. Um, there's a story during World War II, Hitler commanded required all of these different faiths and religions, Christian denominations, to come together. He said they wanted, He wanted them to be united or to come together in same thinking ultimately so he could control them. And one of the denominations was a Brethren Assembly. And in this assembly, about half chose to submit and go underneath Hitler and do what he said to do and think the way that he told them to think. And the other half said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to stand up for what's right. We're going to pursue Jesus uh, and not fall underneath his dictator. And the people who chose not to fall underneath Hitler, every single family uh, at least knew someone who had died in a concentration camp. And so the war ends. And within this denomination, this Brethren Assembly group of churches... You have half these, this group who said yes to falling underneath each other, and half who said no and all of a sudden the war ends and they have to come together to figure out what it looks like to live with one another. And Francis Schaefer, who is an American evangelist theologian, he had a friend who was at this retreat where these leaders of this brethren assembly came together and said, hey, we need to heal this. We need to reconcile this. So these leaders came to this retreat and Francis Schaeffer like, knew a guy who was there and he went to him and was like, hey, how did you guys figure it out? Like, what did you do? And it wasn't they got in a room and they just talked it out and hatched it out and who had the best argument and all this stuff. Two days before they even met in a group, before the leaders even talked to one another, two days at this retreat, they pursued the face of Jesus. They confessed of their bitterness and their sin. They asked for God's forgiveness. They forgave those who were on the other side. And after two days, they came together in friendship and the friend said, hey, What happened? And the friend said, We were just one. We cannot create unity on our own. But in surrender and submission to God's goodness, his agenda, and his ability to work and move individually as we pursue submitting ourselves, surrendering to him, the Holy Spirit does a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in uniting us. That only he can do. The friend goes on to say, "Like as we yielded control to the situation, as we surrendered literally the situation to him, the Holy Spirit just made us one. And they left that place, probably still not thinking, thinking the exact same way. Probably still some frustration, but united in one spirit, in one love, because that's what God does. And we sit and submit underneath him. The third point is this: We must put first the mindset of Christ among us. This verse 5 is such a beautiful, awesome verse because it bridges the gap between verses 1 and 4, and then the next verses 6 through 11, where Paul says, okay, I'm inviting you to be like-minded, to to continue to pursue the same love and the the same spirit with the same purpose, and then he gives us this example of Jesus that we are to follow, but before he gets to the example, hey, listen, in order to do this well, you need to have in your relationships with with one another the same mindset of Jesus. And what that means is we need to pursue and value the things that Jesus pursued and valued. Because when we model our relationships after Jesus, we will become a unified people. When I pursue the things that Jesus did, the Holy Spirit will work, not individually, just in my life, but corporately for us together to be united the way that Jesus prayed in John 17 and the way that call is Paul is calling us to Here, Paul envisions this life of community being formed by the mind of Christ, which is to be formed in relationship with Jesus. And finally, the fourth point. We must pattern our own humility after Jesus. I'm going to go through, there's four things on your note guide if you have it. I added a fifth one. Um, That'll be the first one. But as we go through these next five verses, this is the way that Paul says, hey, have the same mindset of Jesus. Pursue what Jesus did in living a life of humility. And so in verse six, he says, excuse me, he says this, who being in very nature God, he's talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The first thing that I see Jesus doing in pursuing submission, and surrender to God, which ultimately leads to a life of humility. In humility, he was secure in his identity. In humility, Jesus was secure in who he was. We look at the baptism, right? Before he, he gets thrown into the desert to be tempted, he goes to John the Baptist. He says, I need to be baptized. And John the Baptist fights it a little bit. He gets, Jesus gets baptized. The heavens open up. And... The Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes and falls on Jesus and from the heavens declares this voice. And I'm going to say the NLT version, which is this: this voice is, the Father says this. He says, This is my son who brings me great joy. Before Jesus does any ministry, he receives identity from the Father, knowing, like, I bring joy to my Father. Not because of my accomplishment or achievement, because of who I am. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he goes into temptation. Um, to have a correct view of ourself, to be secure in our own identity in Christ, which we talked about two weeks ago, that we are wholly set-apart people, we are servants of his, we are ambassadors of Christ, it says, we are ch- children of God. To be secure in our identity is a first step in, in a pursuit of humility and following Jesus' example. just um, said, it's always the secure who are humble. And though Jesus had all the power and all the authority, he didn't feel the need to exploit it. This is our second one Jesus emptied himself so we need to be Holy Spirit dependent. Verse 7 it says rather he made himself nothing. So Jesus is God. It says being in the very nature of God which literally means to be the form of God so he is God did not count equality with God something to be grasped so he made himself nothing or another verse says so he emptied himself. This is incredible and one minute is not enough time to really explain what this means but I'm going to try. What this means is this Jesus being God, being in the very nature of God. Whatever it takes to make God, God, whatever that looks like or is, Jesus is. Whatever God is like, Jesus is. Fullness of God. 100% God. And yet Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He said he emptied himself. Jesus was God, but he willingly chose to take on the limitations of being human. In emptying himself and making himself nothing, it's not that he stopped being God. He still was God. He just chose not to use the Godness to accomplish the things in which he was supposed to accomplish here on earth. He was still God. He was fully man. In the baptism, when we see the Holy Spirit like a dove falling on Jesus, Jesus lived his earthly life from that moment on being dependent on the Holy Spirit. Not choosing to tap into, which sounds really aggressive and weird, his Godness. He's like, I laid it down. I'm not going to exploit it. I have every right and authority to use it because I'm still God, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be dependent on the Spirit to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And I think one reason he chose to do that, I think there's a lot. But I think one is, I think he wanted to show us as his followers that the life he lived, we are able to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the call to be united, which is an incredibly hard and difficult call that we cannot accomplish on our own, is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be spirit dependent. The next one is have a servant disposition, which Jesus had, says uh, in the end of verse 7 by taking the very nature of a servant, he be- being made in human likeness. Um, being a servant, again, just not a cultural val- value in Philippi. To literally surrender and submit in humility yourself to God's agenda and betterment and service for others was not something that people would have pursued. Having a right view of self and others, Jesus chose to and surrender to the Father, become a servant or a slave. He humbled himself to the lowest place for the sake of God's plan to save humanity from our sin. In humility and the disposition of humility, having this disposition of, of a servant, is to say, I'm a servant of King Jesus who's called me to serve. Next one, uh, he lived in surrendered obedience. It says, and being found in appearance, this is verse eight, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, I think sometimes our obedience will put us in places of lowliness and humiliation, and yet it's that exact same obedience that brings ourselves closer to God and those around us closer to God. Um, the symbol of a cross in this time was the greatest form of humiliation that you could have um, by being put to death. of the greatest forms of humiliation and yet Jesus in obedience went to the cross on our behalf I think there's moments that we're called in obedience to serve people who are really really hard in our life in the church I I think whether it's the outside world or each other we may look at each other like man why would you do that why would you serve in that way why would you make that choice and it can be potentially humiliating But when I have a right view of God in myself, and I start to care what really just God thinks and not what other people think, I'm able to go to those humiliating moments in service of other people for the glory of God in submission and surrender to him. And it's in those moments of humiliation that we actually become closer to Jesus and those around us become closer to him as well. Jesus turned the greatest form and symbol of humiliation, the cross, into an instrument of God's power to liberate and bring freedom. And I think when we have a, sur- a, a surrendered obedience, the Holy Spirit, just, again, does only what he can do. And in our obedience, we become closer to Jesus than those around us do as well. And then finally, we need to submit to Jesus as Lord. This is Jesus' exaltation, the final two ver- three verses where he says this, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This title of Lord is especially significant in this letter. Um, Again, this Roman colony in Philippi would have had a predominant, like a very prominent cult-dedicated worship to the emperor to where literally the only people they could claim as Lord, which is like as master, was Caesar. And so where Paul says... At some point, every name, every person, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's calling them in this moment to not wait for the someday, but to say yes to Jesus as Lord now. And in doing so, to go back on their claim of Caesar as Lord. He's calling the Philippian Christians to say yes to Jesus as Lord. To redirect their allegiance. And it's the same call for us today. There's going to be a time and a moment in history where every single person who's been created is going to finally acknowledge and recognize and see that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And it's at that moment, everyone, whether by will or desire or by force, is going to kneel and recognize say, yep, Jesus, you are Lord. And the call of Paul here is to say, hey, we have an opportunity to submit to Jesus as Lord now. And what's awesome and beautiful about that is who you're submitting to is not just the savior of your souls, but is literally the king of kings. Colossians says Jesus is the one by which everything was been made. And in that, in submission to him, we receive comfort. Because the one in whom we are submitting to is the one who holds all power and authority. Application. Some things to take away. Lay down your own personal conviction and choose Christ's mindset. This is the pursuit of, of trying to be humble as Jesus showed us what humility is. Let's choose his mindset. Allow yourself to be t- dependent on the Holy Spirit as you serve in humility. And then finally, surrender all things to him, for him, because it's under him. And what's awesome about this morning, as the team comes up, is we have an opportunity to, to take communion together. And what an opportunity is today to be able to say, Jesus, you are Lord to allow the Holy Spirit, as as the band sings, they're going to sing, I surrender all. You're going to come up here. If you're on the floor, come up and and grab the elements and go back to your seat. If you're up top, you were able to grab them as you walked in. If not, you can raise your hand and some ushers will come around and, and hand them out to you. But it's an opportunity for us as the band sings, as we reflect and in our own, I think, spirits and souls pray and sing the song they're singing to be able to say, Jesus, I surrender all. It's in communion where we have this opportunity as we take of the bread and the juice together to remember Jesus' life and death for us, the forgiveness of sins, to remember the excruciating pain Jesus went through on the cross in obedience to save our souls, but to mend and redeem and restore a relationship that was once broken with the Father. And as we do that this morning, allow the Spirit just to bring you to a moment of confession. It's something to say, Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to say and to surrender. Jesus, I don't know if you've been Lord in my life over this thing, but help me give it to you. Allow this to be a moment as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus to surrender your life to his.